0: Metal 101. John, can you feel the tingle of electricity in the air? We are returned like Lazarus risen from the grave. Delirious
1: joy. That's what I feel. How you doing? Oh, you know? Look, Eric, it's hotter than balls out here. Very hot. It's it's, it's hard for me to summon energy, but we have iced coffee, Mm -hmm. and we're talking about music that I didn't hate. Yes! I mean, it's really starting off on an
0: auspicious note. We're in kind of a dark room. Do you want me to turn a light on? I can turn a light on. No, it's creepy. a lot of glare. Yeah, yeah, you know, we got the summer outside. Inside here, it's like a crisp autumn night. Anyway, over the course of this summer, I've already had ever so much fun in the sun and now am more than ready to revel in a bit of the pitch-black darkness of Unhallowed Forever Night. Or at least to talk about some goddamn
1: Iron Maiden. How exciting of a topic is this? I mean, it feels as though we are finally now in heavy metal territory Mm -hmm. discussing Iron Maiden. The ambiguity is
0: finally shed.
1: This is balls out
0: heavy metal music. Would you agree? I
1: liked it a lot more before you described
0: it as balls out, but yeah, sure. <laughs> so you're saying we there won't be any balls out? I would prefer it if you keep all the balls in. That's probably for, for the, the best. duration
1: of this recording.
0: So a quick shout out to our good buddy Uzman. Won't Uzman be ever so pleased that we have finally gotten to Iron Maiden after all his bitching and moaning? Yeah, I don't think he listens to this, but yeah, he'll be thrilled. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell him he got shouted out. He better freaking listen. Look, this season is going to be flipping glorious as we begin to explore the great golden age of heavy metal, the 1980s. So, John, I think we can agree that you knew very little about the 1970s heavy metal we discussed over the course of our first season. Yeah, yeah. So what what about your 1980s heavy metal knowledge? This is the serious business. And, like, are you going to be ready, willing, and able to rise to the occasion?
1: Eric, I have excellent news for you. Ooh! I am still going to be completely and 100% able to fill my role of complete and utter moron All right when it comes to this music. So nothing's going to change. Nothing like. is going to change.
0: Good. Those fans who are just like, this is like a comfortable, warm blanket, mm-hmm. they're, yes. they're going to be My in. veil of
1: stupidity will continue to <laughs> reside over this podcast. <laughs> Perfect.
0: Now, before we wade too deep into the wondrous toxic mire that is to come, t- tell me about your summer thus far. Any highlights? Did you perhaps happen to miss... Any Striper concerts, for instance? Or did you do anything else interesting? I didn't go to a Striper concert. Uh, That was a serious miss. Was was it? a whiff.
1: Was it? That was a whiff.
0: Was it? Oh, so good. So good.
1: uh, You know, this is probably not the episode for you to defend that point of view, Mm -hmm. but at some point you're probably going to have to defend that point of view, and I look forward to you trying to make that case. Uh, Yeah, Striper, you know, I think Striper is going to come up. And
0: I'm not going to lie, I'm a big Striper fan. Despite my Jewish Satanism, they are the, my, my favorite Christian glam metal band. Suffice it to say, so the Striper show was
1: awesome. I had a great time, and you were missed. I'm glad you enjoyed the Striper show, but I have not, not heard any live music this year. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's sad. As is a recurring theme, I don't actually like music. That's true. Okay, well, other than that, any other interesting things this summer? I mean, I got to go back to my native homeland of Alaska mm-hmm. which and this this beautiful. This is the good time to go. This to was Alaska. the good time. Yeah, I got 10 straight days of sunny, clear skies and like 60-70 degrees. It was delightful.
0: Did, did you eat salmon?
1: Of course I did. Oh, that's so nice. Yep.
0: Well, aside from the fact that I got to see Striper live for the very first time earlier this summer, I've also done a ton of heavy metal reading, listening, writing, thinking, and have basically reached a transcendent state of satanic enlightenment. I was wondering if, if you can tell. Is that like...
1: Is that what this is? Yeah. I just assumed you were sunburned. <laughs> so
0: I, I, I am indeed glowing with a dark light, is what you're telling me. It's red. Okay. <laughs> so probably a little bit of both. That sounds satanic. Nice. As we get set to begin our epic and sordid journey through the early history of the great Iron Maiden, I could think of no better place to start than a chilly, fog-bound London, England, in January of 1980, with five lads gathered at Kingsway Studio working to record an eponymous... debut album that would play an integral role in launching the coming of a new wave of British heavy metal, a nawabum of sorts, which was soon to overwhelm not simply the British Isles, but our entire godforsaken planet. But wait, this is all way too damn late into the story to begin. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to back up a few years before we can get back here to London of 1980. So John, could you make some rewind noises with your mouth? Okay. Really, the, yeah, I get it. It's, you it's, know what it is. Yeah, it's the Wayne's World yeah, thing. fuck you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and we're probably going to get sued now for your fucking Wayne's World noises. We should be so lucky that anyone <laughs> to have anything to do with those movies listens to this podcast. Oh, Mike Myers is a big fan. More of a Dana Carvey fan myself. But yeah, okay. I respect that.
0: Anywho, our story actually is going to begin nine years earlier. Fucking 71? Nine years! And you told me we were in the 80s. I know! Sorry. You're the one who did the powerful rewind noises. you got us nine years in the past where we begin with the lowliest of all the
1: instruments. Our story begins with a bass guitar. I take umbrage to that statement. (laughs) The drums are clearly the lowliest of all instruments. It
0: was a pun! It was a pun, John! God damn it. My beautiful, mellifluous writing style is just totally lost on you, isn't
1: it? I can't read.
0: (laughs) That's why I read aloud to you. (laughs) So, the heart and soul of Iron Maiden is, and always has been, bassist and principal songwriter Steve Harris. Harris acquired his first bass in the year 1971 at the age of 15. Apparently, and this will interest you, he really wanted to learn the drums but didn't have sufficient floor space. So he decided that bass would be the next best thing. Harris immediately began learning the bass and also writing original music. And now here's some interesting trivia. The first song he wrote, which is a somewhat dorky tune called The Burning Ambition, would go on to be the B side of Iron Maiden's first single. This young fellow indeed had both a burning ambition and a very prodigious burgeoning compositional talent. John, are you surprised to note that the beating
1: heart and driving creative force behind Iron Maiden is a bassist? I mean, that's unusual. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say. However, you will note that my number one comment after listening to this first album was that this was far and away the best bass playing that we had. Uh, I was today. impressed. I had I thought you had no no musical ear of any kind to speak of. I'm a doctorate <laughs> in this business, thank you very much.
0: Oh, right, right, I forgot about that. I'm the one who's under mm-hmm. Uh Yeah, no, the bass playing really does stand out. It's really hot, like heavy in the mix, mm-hmm. which is one of the distinctive, I think, characteristics of Iron Maiden, and it shreds. Yeah. I mean, Steve Harris That's is just a good. very, very good bass player. It was a few years and a couple of youthful bands later in the year of 1975, that a still-teenaged Harris first began the process of assembling The Mighty Iron Maiden. His original name idea was actually Ash Mountain, but apparently he switched it to Iron Maiden one day after stumbling across a film version of The Man in the Iron Mask on TV,
1: and he never looked back. So, John, do you know what an Iron Maiden is? It's a torture device. Yeah. Is it the one that you go in, and then they close it, and it's got mm-hmm. the spikes that theoretically
0: press against you? Yeah, it's you? like person-shaped, I guess if yeah. you know person-shaped, and it's got the spikes. So, that is indeed what an Iron Maiden is, but did you know that Iron Maidens are actually total historical bullshit? I did not! Yeah, they were invented in the 18th century to make people think that the Middle Ages were more spooky and barbaric than they actually were. To what end? I think it's part of a project in general to make the post-Middle Ages seem comparably more civilized hmm. by making the Middle Ages just a, seem like primitive. A, a vast conspiracy on the part of who? Really, it was like Carnival Barker types. I think it was an opportunity to get people something spooky to pay money to oh, go see. Right. So they'd have those like torture museums and stuff like that. Okay. Like All that stuff is pretty much nonsense.
1: Huh. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, make, it does kind of make sense, because like, how would you apply torture... In the context of an Iron Maiden. Yeah, you're just going like, to kill somebody, right? Well, you're you're just, right. It's, the, it's either the spikes are so big that you're dead, or they don't touch you. Yeah. It's very confusing in terms of like actually being effective. Yeah, from a practical
0: standpoint, Not I Not a think. good
1: torture device. I agree. Now, The Rack.
0: Oof. that's a good one. So that's the, could that be our heavy metal band name? The Rack?
1: That's a terrible band
0: name. <laughs> I think we're going to have to revisit that. All right. All right, we'll, we'll come back to that in a bit. <laughs> So, regardless of its utter falseness, the concept of the Iron Maiden is certainly appropriately macabre and heavy metal, and I think it's a damn solid band name. What do you you think?
1: I mean, it has certainly become an an iconic band name, mm-hmm. so it has some staying power. Yeah, it worked, yeah. right? It, it, it did what
0: it needed to do. The early history of Iron Maiden is that of a pub band who had a revolving door membership. And I'm not going to go into this shockingly lengthy list of people who spent some amount of time in 70s versions of the band. Though it is worth noting that the original singer... Paul Day did go on to form the second tier but not totally insignificant album band more so that's pretty cool more they're called more yeah it's not a great that's name. A name yeah it's terrible yeah uh, and they they uh, They're a pretty good band, actually. A little bit underappreciated. That's the last time we're ever going to talk about them on the show, however. All
1: right. Farewell, Moore.
0: We we hardly knew ye. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, the first truly important person to join the band after Harris was classic lineup guitarist number one, Dave Murray, who joined up in 1976. In a nutshell, the tale of early Iron Maiden is one of great songwriting, Increasingly theatrical stage shows, so there was blood, fire, smoke, and apparently at one point a bubble machine on stage. There is a very scary bubble (laughs) machine. I always thought that was a bit of an outlier with the uh, other various effects that they had on their early stage show. They got an ever-increasing local following in London, all the while the core lineup just kept on changing and changing all throughout the late 70s. They just kind of, other than than Harris and Murray, they just kind of couldn't hold together a consistent lineup. It wasn't until 1978 that Iron Maiden's third singer and the first one that actually recorded with the band, Paul Diano, joined. Diano really was more of a punk than heavy metal guy in his attitude and musical interests, and he even had short hair. (gasps) My God! I know, right? Uh, And Steve Harris actually famously hated punk music. Apparently, where Diano and Harris found common musical ground was via Friend of the Show band Deep Purple. John, you remember Deep Purple, right? Sure. Yeah, so it was the Deep Purple tune Dealer, which wasn't on the album you listened to, so it means nothing to you, which Deano used as his audition for the band. It's an important plot point to note that Deano would go on to record not just the legendary demo known as the Soundhouse Tapes, but also Iron Maiden's first two albums. In fact, much though I adore the mighty air raid siren that is Bruce Dickinson's voice, today will be mostly Dickinson-free as we focus on the early Diano era. John, are you sad to
1: note that Bruce Dickinson will not be much of a further part of today's maiden discussion? I am sad to hear that I don't get any Dickinson today, but I look forward to future visits from Dickinson. <laughs> I'm really uncomfortable with all of this. Yes,
0: that was balls out, John. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyhow, Diano is important because in the late 70s, punk-suffused London, in which Maiden came up, the burly, short-haired, gruff-voiced Diano really helped Maiden to cross over and to meld elements of punk's raw energy into their progressive metal style in a way that proved remarkably endearing. Diano may not be the greatest singer of all time, but he was most definitely the right man for those times. The next big timeline blip appears on New Year's Eve of 1978 when that week's version of Iron Maiden went into Space World Studios in Cambridge at a steeply discounted holiday rate and recorded four songs, Prowler, Invasion, Strange World, and Iron Maiden. You know three of those songs. I do. Yeah, yeah. They made this demo recording really just to assist themselves in securing gigs, but it also eventually helped to bring the band to the attention of their future manager, Rod Smallwood, who was integral in getting the band signed to EMI by the end of 1979. Meanwhile, on November 9th, 1979, so we're about a year later, the band publicly self-released a three-song version of the demo. They actually cut out Strange World from this release, pressing just 5,000 copies that sold out pretty much instantly. This album is now a ridiculously hot commodity amongst vinyl collectors, and was really it was intended as a kindly gesture to their local fans, and they titled it The Soundhouse Tapes. Any self-respecting Maiden fans should be sure to await themselves with these raw, charming recordings, which are available on YouTube. All of this, at long last, brings us back where we started, that studio in chilly, fogbound London in January of 1980. Do you know that it was foggy or are you just assuming it was foggy? It's fucking it's London
1: yeah. in
0: January. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm totally guessing. It was probably a beautiful sunny day. Yeah. Yeah. Unseasonably warm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's entirely possible. So, no. The answer is I have no idea. All right. <laughs> I don't know if it was chilly or fogbound. I do know it was London. All right. John. Before we discuss the debut album and a couple other related recordings, tell me, what do you bring to the table? What did you know about Iron Maiden before we began today's delightful
1: journey? Run to the hills. That's it? That's That's it. That's the only one. That was the extent of my knowledge. Did did you like it? Sure. It's a good song. Yeah. Yeah. A little weird,
0: narratively, but...
1: Yeah, you know, from a 2022 point of view, it's probably... Not the best song ever. I mean, it shows empathy. They go, they
0: just change perspectives. Like yeah. it's a pretty dramatic songwriting uh, process. Sure, yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, great song. I and, mean, I liked it. Yeah. and that, of course, just hearing that, you get a sense of the difference between Bruce Dickinson's huge voice versus Paul Diano's rough and tumble voice. Yeah. Well. How about now? What do you know after uh, you know listening to that magnificent first album? What impressions has all of this made on your delicate sensibilities?
1: Well, like I said, phenomenal bass playing. Right. Um, and I, one of the things that stood out to me about this album in particular, having listened to the entire album, was its construction and it being a well-balanced album mm-hmm. that wasn't just pedal to the metal 100% of the time, but there were actually successful ebbs and flows and contrasts of musical sounds in a way that isn't always the case for the music that you've shown me? Yeah, I think that's fair. I
0: mean, I think Iron Maiden learned a lot from Black Sabbath and Judas Priest in those respects. Like, those were the bands that really, the light and shade kind yeah. of concept. And yeah, there's definitely quite a bit of that. It is a well-balanced album. Yeah. It's very nicely put together, especially considering it's a debut and like, yeah. as as we'll learn, kind of like, sort of chaotically produced. Okay. Let's get into this all for serious. We're going to up the irons, folks. First off, let's have our very first assigned listening of the season. This is a new idea. Are you, are you ready for this? Sure. Okay, we're changing our paradigm a tiny bit here. Because John and I are nerds and aren't comfortable Excuse illegally... me? Yes, you're a nerd. Yes, yes. You don't think you're a nerd? I don't know. Yeah, I think... Yeah. Wow, are you going to have to do some soul-searching
1: after this? No, I don't
0: care. <laughs> well, would you agree that neither of us are comfortable illegally playing music to which we don't have the rights? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. This season, I'm going to occasionally present you, the listener, with, quote, assigned listening. This will be available through links in the show notes. The listener can either choose to pause the show and check out the assigned listening in real time, or you can just go back and give things a listen whenever you damn well please. Okay. Okay. The first assigned listening track is track number one from the eponymous Iron Maiden debut, Prowler. This will get all of us into the perfect headspace to discuss this song and this album. I'll offer a few things to listen for, and then I advise hitting pause, clicking the link in the show notes, giving the track a listen, and then coming back for the rest of the discussion. That's what John and I are going to do. Okay, first, a few things to listen for, both in this song and just more generally in early Iron Maiden. Number one... Dueling lead guitars. This song has an incredible dual guitar opening and twin lead guitar harmonizing and training solos is something very prominent throughout Maiden's career. Number two, an incredible rhythm section, and particularly, as John mentioned, virtuosic bass lines prominent in the mix. Steve Harris leads this band and his bass playing is second to none. The churning, busy sound of Harris's bass is one of Maiden's most important trademarks, although the drumming is pretty amazing as well. Basically, anywhere you choose to musically focus your attention, you're going to find some really interesting, wonderful things happening. And then, number three, that gruff punk energy of Paul Diano's rather unpolished vocals. These are very different from what one hears in later Iron Maiden, but they're pretty awesome, and I think Diano perfectly complements the sound of early Iron Maiden. All right, John, cue up the music! I hope everyone is feeling appropriately frisky having listened to this absolutely incredible, if decidedly sleazy, opening track.
1: You know, that's it. We, we did just do as we instructed you all and actually listen to the the words. Mm-hmm. Not the words, the song. <laughs> I, my, my comment is salient to the words. I didn't process a single word of the text. Okay, we're going to go through it. Don't worry. We'll listen to it.
0: <laughs> you know, we are not in any sort of snobby sense. We're both music people, right? We're musicians. I don't think either of us Put lyrics terribly front and
1: center in our listening habits? Oh, well, you uh, might. You're I like do. A, you know, yeah, you're in musical theater. All I, right, well, musical theater and opera. Oh, so you have no excuse. It just doesn't, it, it just like went kind of straight over my head. All right. Everything else was more interesting. Well, <laughs> that's fair.
0: I mean, there's a lot of interesting things happening. All right, so what did, what did you think of Pro?
1: It was nice. It's good. It's you know, it's got a great energy. There's good sound. You know, I've already talked about how awesome the bass playing is. Mm-hmm. The drums weren't just obnoxious the whole time. A there lot was, of
0: texture. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. were different
1: layers there. It had a great ending, mm-hmm. unlike a lot of the songs. Yeah, you like. You never I, like endings. Well, a lot of these kind of heavy metal songs just sort of like repeat the chorus again and stop, and that yeah. is really unfulfilling to me. Yeah,
0: this was a a good a good tag. Really. Yeah, <laughs> do something. Well. I have no words to express how much I love this song. It is one of my favorite probably one of my favorite songs of all time. It's definitely one of my favorite Iron Maiden songs. And I think it does such a great job of kickstarting what was to be just a, a an entire like decade after decades of great heavy metal to come certainly in the 1980s which is, you know, Iron Maiden's greatest period, but they're still making new wonderful albums even now. The opening riff it just absolutely kills me, particularly when it's layered with Dave Murray's Wah, wah guitar melody on top it's so great and as we've talked about, the bass and the drums. There ain't no bass like a Steve Harris bass. And Clive Burr, who is the drummer on this album, the first three Iron Maiden albums, is just also fantastic. The rhythm section, just overall, is totally amazing. I think Diano's vocal performance is actually also really great. Diano kind of gets a lot of crap because he's not Bruce Dickinson, who has one of the most mellifluous, powerful voices in really rock history. But I think Diano just owns this song, and it totally Plays to his strengths as a singer. Now, John mentioned the lyrics. I would say that the lyrics haven't aged quite as well as the rest of the song. So, John, might you give us a recitation of the first two stanzas? No, I'm gonna regret this
1: <laughs> Walking through the city, looking oh so pretty, I've just got to find my way. See the ladies flashing all their legs and lashes? I've just got to find my way. That's a very forced rhyme. (laughs) Well, you see me crawling through the bushes with it open wide. What you seeing, girl? Can't you believe that feeling? Can't you believe it? Can't you believe your eyes? It's the real thing, girl. For shame, good sir. For
0: shame. So, crawling through the bushes with, quote, it, open wide. I hope you know, John, I'm definitely going to hold on to the recording of that recitation, <laughs> and I'm going to use it to blackmail you. I just want you to know that right now.
1: I don't, I don't know. Uh, fine. All right. You can uh, take all my money that I don't have. Yeah, you,
0: once you, I need to wait till so you get something of, of worth. I don't recommend holding your breath. <laughs> well, now you can see why this song is called Prowler, right? The lyrics, sure. You know, yeah, it's pretty on the nose. Yep. Yep. Um, So, at Prowler, you know, you say that the lyrics are, the rhymes are a little bit forced. I mean, this song had been kicking around Maiden set lists for years and years. It predates Diano's time in the band, so it's really a mid-70s song. I mean, the lyrics are pretty juvenile and crass and kind of stupid, but the music is is freaking amazing. The the writing credit for this song is solely given to bassist Steve Harris. Now, before we get too much further into the discussion of this debut album, I'm going to backtrack just a few months, because although the debut wasn't released until April of 1980, there's a couple of important things that happened earlier that year. Okay, so first off, on February 8th, 1980, Iron Maiden released the first single from this still forthcoming debut album. This was the song Running Free. As this was much of the world's first taste of Iron Maiden, I think this song also merits a listening assignment. How could we not experience Maiden as the world first experienced Maiden? We're now putting ourselves in the mindset of being a youth of the 1980s persuasion who is first hearing this amazing band via this single from February 8th, 1980. Once again, you're gonna find a link in the episode notes. If you don't know this tune, or even if you do, we suggest you pause the show and give it a good listen. You shan't regret it. John, get out my way and let's listen to some maiden madness. Go!
1: (laughs) 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 I had to do one! (laughs) Yeah. Oh, look at him. John! John did it! John did it!
0: <laughs> this is what Iron Maiden does to people. It's an inspiration. <laughs> so that tune always puts me in a very joyful mood. John, that was fun, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun song. I mean, it's not a brilliant song, but no. it's, a, it's a good rock, like, hard yeah. rock and single and whatnot. So, Running Free is actually credited to both Harris and singer Paul Diano, who wrote the lyrics, and apparently they were quasi-autobiographical. It's not in any really interesting way. And we're not going to talk about the lyrics. Perfect. <laughs> but but now, now you know. Should you read them, Paul D'Anno apparently got up to some uh, trouble as a young man running free in the streets of London. Although this song transplants that to America. But anyway, as previously mentioned, the rather skippable B-side to this single was the non-album track Burning Ambition, which was actually one of the earliest songs Harris ever wrote way back when he was with his very first teenage band, Gypsy's kiss, which I believe is a Londoner euphemism for peeing.
1: Is it really? Something like that. I just, just, just talking about peeing, guys. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> Think, come that. listen to my band <laughs> taking a piss.
0: That's not a bad name, actually. I could do that.
1: <laughs> you can see it on a
0: T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, it's better than the rack, right?
1: <laughs> uh, well, again,
0: let's come back to that. The debut album from Taking a Piss, <laughs> the rack. <laughs> Okay. So, visuals. Visuals are a big part of Iron Maiden. So, John, I'd like you to take a look at the cover for the Running Free single and describe it to our fine listeners. Now, without providing any spoilers, I'll say that this is the very first of many album and single covers designed by the great artist Derek Riggs, who is a rather essential non-musical member of the Maiden family. So, what do you see?
1: All right. So, there are predominantly two colors, but... Iron Maiden and the title Running Free are in red. Do you it's red? I think it's pink. Okay, sure. <laughs> I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, whatever. Some sort of value of
0: reddish pink. Yeah.
1: I mean, look, maybe if you cleaned your computer screen, I'd have half a chance. It's a, a dirty chance.
0: computer screen. I'm surprised you're putting your face that close to
1: it. <sighs> well, you know, I'm, for the podcast, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would definitely get a uh, vaccine after,
1: after this. <laughs> that's alarming. <laughs> All right, but the dominant colors are black and yellow. And what we see is what appears to be a trash-filled alley and some sort of a youth with long hair and jeans and rolled-up sleeves and a vest Mm -hmm. running from a uh, tall creepy-looking figure. Yeah, with a a shadowy face. Yeah, shadowy face. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It gives me sort of a Spider-Man slash Venom vibes just in the head part of it. The rest of it, clearly not. But Uh he's running away. He's turned down this alley. But what he clearly does not see, because his head is turned away from us looking at the figure chasing him, is a very spooky-looking hand with uh, very long, claw-like nails reaching out towards him, coming from almost our perspective. Yeah. It's like we're
0: the bearer mm-hmm. of the creepy hand. Yeah, it's a pretty dramatic image, right? Yeah. Now, there is an important bit of subtle theatricality bedded into this cover, and we're going to get back to that in a few minutes, so stay tuned. So, the running free single was released on February 8th of 1980 and made some amount of local UK waves, peaking at number 34 on the charts over there. Iron Maiden were often running without even an album available yet. But wait, there's still more. Just a couple short days later, on February 15th of 1980, came one of the founding moments of the Nawabo, the release of the EMI compilation entitled,
1: John, you'll love this, Metal for Mothers. I don't love that. <laughs> uh, he is not kidding. It is spelled M-U-T-H-A-S. <laughs> so,
0: mothers, which seems to have fallen out of favor these days, but this was an early UK term
1: sort of for metalheads. So that's, huh. that's who the mothers were. Do, I, I know we've talked about it on the podcast before, but you keep saying this term, Nawabum. Do we need to define that directly for our listeners? I
0: think that we should. You I took the very words out of my mouth.
1: You're exactly right. Can you, do you remember? I gotta look at the, okay, so it's new wave of British heavy metal or hair yeah. metal? Yes, it's <laughs> not hair metal. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's all the same. I mean, me. they, they had hair. Except for Diana.
0: Yes, it was indeed the new wave of British heavy metal. This was a term coined in a Sounds Magazine article by the journalist Jeff Barton, who was referencing the decline of punk and the rise of a new wave of heavy metal bands in the UK. We'll get into this on a future episode. It was actually his editor who coined the term, and it's coined in the title of the article rather than the body. But suffice it to say, that's where the term came from, 1979, Sounds Magazine. That's
1: right, listeners. Get excited for a future episode (laughs) wherein we discuss editors. (laughs) We're also going to discuss
0: specific pubs, we're going to get the whole thing, it's going to be so good. Oh, this season's going to be good! So, this is basically a next generation of bands who had been inspired by the likes of Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Motorhead, all of our fine feathered friends that we discussed last season. Iron Maiden, unsurprisingly, were always at or near the heart of this movement and are the most important of the bands to emerge from the New album, though certainly not the only band of consequence. More on that in a future episode. Anyhow, compilations like Metal for Mothers were important factors in spreading the gospel of New album. Maiden had two tracks on Volume 1, Sanctuary and Wrathchild. Interestingly, neither of those are on the debut album, and both are fantastic. Sanctuary actually went on to be the band's second single, and Wrathchild is on their second album, Killers. Metal For Mothers also made a pretty serious impact culturally, reaching number 12 on the British charts, and it was followed by an important Metal For Mothers tour, which included, among many other important no-album bands, the still internationally unknown Iron Maiden on its first 11 dates. For interested parties, Metal for Mothers Volume 1 is available on the y- olden YouTube, and it is certainly worth a listen. Aside from Maiden, most of the bands on it are actually pretty obscure today, but there are a few other significant new album contributors on the compilation, including Prang Mantis, Angel Witch, and Samson. John, do you know why Samson is important to this discussion? For his hair. <laughs> he did have beautiful hair to let. Witch, cut it off. Uh, no, uh, Samson had a singer whose name at the time was Bruce Bruce.
1: Bruce yes. <laughs> Bruce? Bruce,
0: Bruce, Bruce. Uh, But his actual name, well, his actual name is, is Paul, but whose name. Was his name Paul Bruce? <laughs> He was like, this is stupid. I'm Bruce Bruce now. Yeah. I don't know what the hell he was thinking. Suffice it to say, we now know that fellow as Bruce Dickinson. So Bruce Dickinson was actually in Samson before he was in Iron Maiden. Bruce Dickinson was the singer of Samson from 1979 to 1981. Was he Paul Dickinson? I, and then. His birth name is Paul Bruce Dickinson.
1: Oh. Yeah.
0: Paul Bruce Dickinson. So he was like, screw Paul, I'm Bruce Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I do <laughs> I think it was a I think it was a fail. I love Bruce Dickinson. I just think that was a that was a dark time. I also really dislike Samson. So, it was it was a tough time for Bruce Bruce. Is what it was. <laughs> but he really found himself when he when he finally shed the second bruce <laughs> it became the dickinson Wait, no, unless, unless,
1: unless you're in australia that's one too many bruces <laughs> all right so the Noabum was off
0: and running and we will return to that glorious moment in time just a few episodes hence but john are you okay if we put a pin in the new for now Sure. Can we can we stop talking about Bruce,
1: Bruce for a bit?
0: I mean, I'll do my best. All right. If you need if you need to get something out, you just let me know. All right. Let's finally finally get serious about talking specifically about the wondrous debut album from our beloved Iron Maiden. So first, just a few fast facts. The eponymous debut album of Iron Maiden was recorded in January of 1980 at Kingsway Studio in London and was kind of sort of produced by Will Malone. Do you remember that name? No. Okay, so Will Malone is someone who fans of our podcast with more attention span than John might recall as the arranger who did all the orchestral and choir materials from the later 1970s Black Sabbath album. That was his sort of claim to fame. Will Malone was the guy who did all the orchestrations on those more froggy later Black Sabbath post, right? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so would you call him pre, pre Malone? <laughs> 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 Ladies and gentlemen, good night. <laughs> So, as his story goes, Malone actually was totally disinterested in the project. Apparently, he literally sat there, like, smoking a pipe and reading a newspaper the entire time. That sounds awesome. Uh, yes. So he essentially left the band to self-produce their debut album. And the recording took 13 days. It was actually released on April 14th, 1980. Now, to be clear, the lineup in total for this first album was as follows. Paul D'Anno, vocals. Dave Murray, lead guitar, now we haven't mentioned him yet, Dennis Stratton, lead guitar and backing vocals, Steve Harris, of course, bass and backing vocals, and Clive Burr, drums. A couple of important things to be noted about this lineup. Only two of these dudes, Harris and Murray, really represent what we generally think of as the classic Iron Maiden lineup. Paul Diano, as previously mentioned, is not Bruce Dickinson. Deanna, or or Bruce Bruce, I mean, he's probably more Bruce Bruce than Bruce Dickinson, but um, Deanna recorded on all of Maiden's demos and on their first two studio albums, but was, depending on who you talk to, kicked out of the band for being a complete drug-addled mess in late 1981. Now, for the record, I really like Diano in Iron Maiden, and while he is no Bruce Dickinson, his contributions and unique voice and energy are really crucial to the early history of the band. This was Dennis Stratton's only album with Maiden. He was actually in the band for less than a year in total and was replaced by classic lineup co-lead guitarist Adrian Smith in October of 1980. Clive Burr, rest in peace, drummed on the first three Maiden albums but was replaced by the classic lineup drummer, the delightfully named Nico McBrain in 1982. Now, Nico's real name is actually Michael Henry McBrain. Oh, I have a fun fact for you. Nico McBrain actually attended the same extremely conservative South Florida church as my father-in-law. So, I have a personal connection with Nico McBrain.
1: Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 actually, I, I assume we will <laughs> come to <circle> discuss back. <laughs> how someone who apparently grew up in South Florida ended up in this band. Uh, no
0: so Nico grew up in England and okay. relocated in his old you know like everyone does. retired to Florida yeah although he's still drumming for Iron Maiden today but yes <laughs> basically retired. okay let's now take a look at Derek Rigg's iconic cover design. John mm-hmm, buddy mm-hmm. what do you see? okay again I'm g- now is this pink or is no this red? is red this you- okay good yes yeah. So well I think that the single cover was pink this is definitely
1: red. All right, so Iron Maiden is in red. Mm-hmm. Again, prominent ha. yellow mm-hmm. and black. Yeah, and yeah, now same there are some theme, more right? colors. Yeah. Again, front and center, we see a sort of, I guess you'd call it a zombie like figure. Yeah, yeah. Um, similar hairstyling as to the uh, creepy uh. thing in the. Uh, First Yes, good, good. I and mean, what the hell is happening over here on the left? It just seems to be like a, is that a street light?
0: Yeah, it's like a street light. I think it's a real spot in London. I think you can actually like it's see like just it to like this a, day. It's so it's just like like a trash trash bin. It? Yeah, it's just like a real so we've got like sort of reality and zombie scary figure with like big hair and No all Iron all
1: Maidens though.
0: Uh, No, not an Iron Maiden to be seen. Yeah, that's a good point. No, but we do have the first definitive appearance of the iconic Iron Maiden mascot, Eddie, who is sometimes known as Eddie the Head. So Eddie is a seriously important part of Iron Maiden lore, but this actually isn't, as John picked up on, quite the first time we've seen him. So there was that shadowy figure in the background on the Running Free cover. Let me remind you of that. Yeah, See? (laughs) See
1: that guy? Yeah. And now, ta-da! Yeah, I, I could, I would definitely buy those as the same. Isn't that? Thing. So we got
0: some pretty interesting with the color scheme and the, the, all that. This is we got really interesting visual continuity going on here, <laughs> which is one of the, you know, six million things that make Iron Maiden such a smart, interesting, fun band to follow. Because you can collect all these like single covers, and there's, there's almost like a narrative quality to a lot of it. Eddie was created by the great artist Derek Riggs, who I mentioned previously, who designed all of the classic 80s Iron Maiden album and single covers. Eddie has shown up in one form or another on every one of their albums. The original version uh, of a sort of proto-Eddie was actually a papier-mâché stage prop created by band friend Dave Lights Beasley which was ever further integrated into Maiden's stage backdrops, first spewing blood and later belching out red smoke during their early shows. Maiden's stage shows and incorporation of Eddie has gotten a wee bit more sophisticated since then, but we will chat more about that on a future Iron Maiden episode. Uh, Anyway, so the track list on the debut is as follows. We got Prowler, which we've already had the pleasure of hearing and discussing. is quite possibly my favorite Iron Maiden song. Track two is Remember Tomorrow, which is an exceptionally good heavy metal ballad-type deal, sort of in the stairway-to-heaven tradition with a massive build, tempo change, and shredding guitar. Ooh, and a fun fact, Remember Tomorrow is the song that Bruce Dickinson... Bruce, Bruce. ...would eventually be asked to sing as his audition to replace Deano. Yeah. Uh, next is Running Free, which we also discussed, the first single and the only one actually from the album. And then side one closes with the first in what will prove to be a long line of Harris-penned literary-inspired epic, The Seven-Minute Phantom of the Opera, based on the Gaston Leroux novel of the same name, which I'm guessing you haven't read. No, I can't read. We've already discussed that. <laughs> it's it's not a great book. It's okay. Now, for the record, Iron Maiden's version is a whole big bunch cooler than andrew lloyd weber's
1: version would you agree with that, that is undoubtedly accurate as everything <laughs> that andrew lloyd weber has ever written is complete and utter garbage wow yeah wow yeah uh, well i uh, fight me agree
0: to disagree but you know i'm not i'm certainly not going to spend any of my limited credibility with you <laughs> i prolong defense of andrew lloyd weber it's a good choice yeah this song is a mega maiden classic, and while I think everyone needs to listen to this entire album, I want to particularly advocate for people checking out this track, as it's probably the most Iron Maiden song on the debut. Did you dig on Fan of the Opera? That's the really long, proggy one.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm encouraged to hear that this is the most Iron Maiden mm-hmm. song on this, because I did actually like this one. And it wasn't, you know, you mentioned it's seven minutes long, but it's not just long. And kind of mindless, like a lot of the music you made me listen to so far has been. Uh, But this really had some nice trajectory and musical composition to it.
0: Yeah, it's a really, I mean, especially considering what a young band they were at the time, it's a pretty beautifully put together, like, seven-minute track. Yeah, and they do a lot of that sort of thing. They're very good at that kind of thing. So side two opens with something Iron Maiden actually really don't do very often, which is an instrumental. This one is titled Transylvania. And
1: I think it's exceptionally
0: good. Uh, John, I know you aren't much of a rock instrumental guy. Uh, did you like Transylvania? Did it make any impression on you?
1: I don't remember it. <laughs> Again, this whole album, I didn't dislike anything on this album. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, so you didn't, like, get all pissed off about uh, no. the song or anything? No, yeah, I
1: wasn't in a constant state of rage like some of the listening you've made me do. <laughs> aren't you just generally in a constant state of rage? Believe like, it or not, like, no, no. Normally, I'm, like, just pretty apathetic.
0: yeah. Oh. <laughs> So, so you're welcome that I take you out of it. Like, I make your life worth living.
1: Is that what it is? It's
0: rage. Um, so I'm I'm just totally agnostic when it comes to, like, pop and rock instrumentals. They can be either great or totally terrible. But I think Transylvania works really well. It's short. It's very, like, visual. sort of, like, conjures up images in the mind in the way that, like, an instrumental really probably should. It's a fun fun track. Strange World follows and it's the other sort of kind of ballad thing the other sort of slow tune Diano with his sort of limited vocal abilities doesn't particularly excel at balladry but I actually really like both of the slow tunes on the debut and there's great just beautiful lead guitar work on this track it's very emotional very sort of soulful also though he's not here credited this song was co-written by Maiden's first singer the previously mentioned Paul Mario Day
1: so good job Paul John, you liked Strange World, right? I did like this one, yeah. Again, this album was well-constructed, and mm-hmm. it's providing ebbs and flows, and I really liked this ebb in yeah. the contrast of everything else around it. I agree, especially, I mean, so you,
0: like, I know, you know, we don't really have sides anymore, but you have Phantom of the Opera, which is wild and crazy, and then you have a pretty, like, Fast, Furious short instrumental in Transylvania, and then it's a very nice change of pace and yeah. emotional space and all that. The penultimate track is the only one on the whole album that wasn't penned by Steve Harris. That is Dave Murray's Charlotte the Harlot, now, for reasons I've never quite understood, this becomes the first installment in a series of three or four songs, depending on how you choose to count them, spread over the course of over a decade and telling the sad tale of Charlotte and her harlotry. Oddly, I don't really think any of the songs in that series are especially great, but but whatever. It's certainly all part of the overall Iron Maiden lore. "Charlotte the Harlot" is pretty definitively the weakest song on the album, in my opinion. But but it's memorable.
1: It's got punky energy, and like I like it. I don't hate it at all. Did you remember that one? I I would agree as this stood out as being the weakest in particular after following "Strange World," yeah. which was. Great. It's comparably pretty juvenile sounding, yeah. like
0: it's a pretty simplistic tune, but it's fine. It's got energy. It's you know whatever. It's uh, I, it, like
1: in terms of the album construction, I think it works. Pretty the listeners nice will note that this is as close as Eric is willing to get of critical of something that he cares about. Yeah. That's true. That's true. This I, I feel like I'm stressed. I need to, I need to pause for some deep breathing. <laughs>
0: so the album closes with a complete shit kicker that is every bit as strong as Prowler, and that is the song Iron Maiden this is the song Iron Maiden from the album Iron Maiden by the band Iron Maiden we, we like that, your favorite right? thing that is it's like the trifecta what that is <laughs> this track was destined to become a staple of all Iron Maiden live concerts forever and anon it's kind of the last song they tend to play and they bring out the big robots and like it's just a whole big production number in fact it's time now for the last bit of assigned listening for today's episode I mean, frankly, anyone who doesn't know the entire album really does need to remedy that as soon as is humanly possible. This is an absolute iconic staple of heavy metal. But at the very least, we cannot possibly talk about this album and not hear the iconic closing track. So, hit up those show notes one more time. John, I want to see your blood. I want to stand and stare. Play the fucking song! god damn that's a fine closer this is a great album right yeah yeah Uh, was this did you like this more than Judas Priest that's difficult to say or Van Halen those
1: were all the ones you liked right Van Halen 1 Van Halen was fine I liked this more than Van Halen oh uh, it's a toss up between this and Judas Priest okay. they're, they're just very different in my mind but we're starting off in a pretty positive headspace we're, here. we're starting off in a great headspace yeah. comparatively I'm planning on totally
0: crushing that very I soon assume that everything will be terrible <laughs> on out. well considering we're only focusing on death and motorhead for the rest of this perfect uh, love season. that <laughs>
1: great <laughs> alright everybody well it's been great getting to know you over the course of this season in one episode well, oh. tune in next week where the new idiot will be someone else <laughs> John is the Dennis Strat of the heavy metal 101 (laughs) podcast family (laughs) one
0: and done (laughs) <laughs> Look, uh, Iron Maiden certainly continued to grow and evolve over the course of the 1980s, but this is really and truly one of my all-time favorite albums. I think it is a perfect balance of cutting-edge, modern, you know, circa 1980, heavy metal with progressive elements, but also a raw and just really endearing punk energy that to me just still feels very fresh. Like, I don't, I don't know, this doesn't sound dated to me. I'm much older than you. Does this sound dated
1: I mean I guess it sounds period like yeah, it's it sounds period temporary. It doesn't sound like timeless, but it doesn't it doesn't sound like the negative way I would say it is it's very of its time. It doesn't yeah. sound like Okay. That. I think I can accept that, yeah.
0: The debut album did not chart in the U.S., but it did make it all the way to number four on the U.K. charts. Pretty good. Yeah, they're they're definitely doing pretty well. Now, unlike our good friends Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden actually were appreciated by the critics, even back at the beginning. I mean, I think bands like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest have done a lot of groundwork in making that feasible. In Sounds magazine, that aforementioned Nawabem Queener Jeff Barton, he wrote of the first Iron Maiden album that it was, quote... Heavy metal for the 1980s. Its blinding speed and rampant ferocity making more plastic heavy metal tracks from the 60s and 70s sound sloth-like and funeral dirgy by comparison.
1: I have a hard time contextualizing that just because I don't have the knowledge that you have of mm. like, what they would have been listening to prior to right. But having listened to everything that we have listened to, that's surprising to hear. Because it's not like it's slow, but it's not like death. Right. Where it's just right. like here let me smash your head against a wall <laughs> for seven minutes. I mean to me I think the
0: real obvious point of comparison here is like Black Sabbath to Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden I think in many respects is to the 1980s what Black Sabbath was to the 1970s is sort of the premiere band that sort of established, at very least in traditional heavy metal, that really established that. So, I mean, if you compare this to, like, what Black Sabbath were generally doing, it does feel much faster. It also, just in general, it's so fluent and so... Fast, yet musical, and Mm -hmm. competent, and all that stuff. I think that's a reasonable assessment, even though, obviously, you know, Motorhead were playing blindingly fast music already at the time, and Judas Priest were more than capable of doing the same. But, you know, at least somebody's saying nice things about a nice band, I think. Yeah, that's that's great. Thanks, Jeff. Just, just really telling it like it is. Now, interestingly, the band, and most particularly Steve Harris, have often kvetched about the debut album's production over the years, and they seem to harbor a pretty strong dislike for the way this album sounds which I think is strange because I think it sounds great it
1: doesn't I mean I haven't heard their other albums so I can't compare the production quality they're different and the, me.
0: yeah you know as we'll learn the production is going to change considerably from Killers On and it's going to be much more like eloquent in its production instead of sort of rough and energetic like this but but I think it works really well on this album there's this great scene in the history of Iron Maiden documentary You have Steve Harris, he's really just sort of like eloquently bitching about the production. He's very verbose and just explaining what was wrong with it. And suddenly they cut to Paul Dianu, who in this very thick Cockney accent says, Beethoven could have done a better job and he was deaf right along and then it cuts back to Harris. <laughs> it's it's awesome. It's very witty. All right. Just to wrap things up, at long last, there were two more singles released in 1980. The previously mentioned non-album track Sanctuary was released in May. I should note that on some versions of the debut album, Sanctuary was actually added, but it wasn't the case on the original European release, which is what's available mostly these days, uh, certainly on Spotify and, and such places. Sanctuary sounds like pretty much nothing else in Maiden's catalog, and there's good reason for that. It was written by early guitarist Rob Angelo, who was in the band way back in 1977. The single has a great, rather controversial cover that features Eddie knifing British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to death in an alley. Yikes. I know, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's you know it's rendered in the same style as those other things. It's not hyper-realistic, but it's Pretty intense. And Sanctuary is definitely, it's made in at their very most punk rock. It's a very punk sounding fun song. Not my favorite of their songs, but it's fun. And last but not least, there is the very strange final single, Aberration, that was Women in Uniform which was another non-album cover of a tune originally by an Australian band called Skyhooks. The song is actually pretty stupid, but the cover is fun. It features Eddie walking down the street. He's got like a pretty girl on either arm. And in the alley, sort of in the corner, he's being stalked by a back-from-the-dead Margaret Thatcher, who's carrying a machine gun. And considering the title, this isn't terribly surprising. She's wearing a uniform. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. So, two two fun facts about women in uniform. First off, they actually made their first music video for this song, which is sort of weird and audacious because MTV wasn't around yet. I
1: was going to say how were music videos a popular thing to do at this yeah, point? Yeah,
0: people did these like short form videos as a promo thing before how, MTV.
1: How did those get released? To the
0: public, they'd show them on like TV shows that would air videos huh. prior to MTV. MTV comes out for reference, and I think it's August of 1981, so we're pretty close. But uh, yeah, "Women in Uniform" is is pre-MTV, but they, but this is not a totally unusual practice. The video is, of course, as you can imagine, from that time, really stupid. Yeah, but you know, it's fun. Second, I have a fact that is tailor-made for you. Are you ready? Me? Yeah, it's it's a I, John fact. I can't wait. You're gonna like this. Apparently, uh, these are the kind of things I look up just for you. Women in Uniform is one of only five songs over the entire course of Iron Maiden's career that uses a fade out.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: huh? Only
1: five songs. Good for them. I thought you'd be more excited. About that. <laughs> no, but I mean, <laughs> I, I can't remember if we've talked about it in the actual recording or just while we were listening, but like. like their songs have endings, ah, so they don't need which fade I out. Appreciate. Yeah, okay, yeah.
0: yeah. So you're saying do that this do is an a, ending? Okay, this is a band that didn't require the fade yeah. out like some of the. I other mean, bands.
1: I'll take a fade out to the abrupt stop at the end of a repeated chorus, mm. but uh, okay. I like that they do endings. That was disappointing, then. That's what I'm here <laughs> for, Eric.
0: That's, that's, that's it's here <laughs> to bring you down.
1: Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next month on Heavy Metal 101. Oh God, help me. The 80s are go. John, we're off and running,
0: all we need is a bunch of cocaine and much bigger hair, and this party will be banging. So do you have any questions, comments, or thoughts about Iron Maiden, the shiny new adventure that we have now commenced, before we remind all the lovely folks of how they can contact us with their bitter complaints, fawning adoration, or pearls of wisdom?
1: No, I mean, this was a good start. It's nice, you know, particularly in today's musical age, where we so rarely get albums that feel constructed, because people don't... Listen to albums anymore. Mm-hmm. It was nice to listen to a full album that had a good structure to it. Yeah. I feel like we're off to a good start this season. Ah, uh, John, is uh, you've really grown a lot. Okay. So, John, could you tell the nice people how to reach us? You can contact us via email at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast at gmail.com, via voice message at anchor.fm forward slash Heavy Metal 101 Podcast, or you can find us on social media on Facebook at Heavy Metal 101 Podcast, or on Twitter at Heavy underscore 101, or on Instagram at Heavy Metal One O One Podcast. We are so everywhere. Are we? No, there's
0: everywhere old people are, right? Oh yeah. well that's
1: us. God damn it.
0: So true. Also, we can reach more nice people like yourself if we have more excellent reviews and five-star ratings on places like iTunes. So if you have the time or inclination, such things would be most appreciated. John, could you do me a solid and recite those ridiculously awkward and incriminating Prowler lyrics just one more time so I have a backup recording? No,
1: I don't remember them. It's probably for the best.